Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Before I introduce today's guest, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination, patreon.com slash indoctrination to become a supporter of this show if you like it and you want it to continue. Thank you very much. And for today, we have Jamila Chisholm. Jamila Chisholm was born in New York City and grew up in Brooklyn. She graduated from City College in New York City, received her Master's of Arts in Teaching from the University of Southern California, and received her MFA from the Writers' Foundry at St. Joseph's College in Brooklyn. As a journalist, Jamila has written countless articles focused on culture and race and women, and she has worked with numerous media companies and publications, including Color Lines, Essence, Time's Up, Vibe, and The Source. Jamila is an avid traveler, runner, and language learner. She lives in Brooklyn with her cat, Reese's. For more information, you can visit www.njamilachism.com. Jamila is going to be talking about a group that some of you have never heard of. And I was very excited to be able to talk to her because this group is a group I had heard about years ago. And it kind of captures a slice of history and a very interesting way that a group had operated and had continued to operate for many years until people sort of found out about what was happening. But Jamila is a strong, strong woman who has spent time uncovering what happened in the group and what happened to her and how it impacted her. It's a great way of showing that no matter how long or how short of a time you spend in a group, still there's an exponential impact that it has, especially when it not only affects you, but it affects your entire family. Here's Jamila now. I am so happy to have Jamila Chisholm on the show today. I love, first of all, meeting new people who can share their story, who can share their experiences and their particular angle also in thinking back on their experiences. And your story is about a group that I remember hearing about in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, uh, doing this work for a while, there, there were these names that you became familiar with early on that you don't hear very much anymore. And so reading about your story sort of brought me back to hearing the name of the leader that I really, it's been a couple of decades that I've heard about him, but he stood out as someone who you really wanted to learn from in terms of what not to ever do, what, what situation to never put people in and just the hubris, the entitlement, the abusive nature of it all. Those stories stay with you. So unfortunately, this is, this is the person in the group that you had to deal with. And part of what's interesting about your story too is understanding that sometimes the length of time that you're involved in something doesn't matter as much as the particular experiences that stay with you. And kind of also this angle of wondering about your own parents getting involved in something or bringing you into something that turned out to not be safe. And 
how they could be sort of convinced that it was the best idea for them or for their family. That I always find very interesting. And I talk to a lot of parents too, who in retrospect really wonder about how they bought that and how they bought into that idea. And so I would love for you to spend a few moments introducing yourself. And I know we'll talk about your story. We'll talk about your book. So tell us a little bit about you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy and excited to talk about this. I am Jamila Chisholm, and I am a um, New Yorker, born and bred. My background, professionally speaking, is as a journalist. That is the career that I have chosen for myself and something that I've been doing since my early 20s. So it's been about 25 years of working in journalism. I'm also a teacher at Columbia University. They're a school of international public affairs. And I also work at Barnard College, where I am the director of creative content. So I am a storyteller. I love to tell stories. I love speaking with people just like you do, Rachel. I love meeting new people. I love learning about people's origin stories, their backgrounds. And I'm extremely curious about why people do what they do and or what their paths are and why they may have chosen X, Y, and Z paths. And thinking about my work as a journalist, uh, it was uh, an interesting thing to turn the lens onto myself because I'm usually the one asking the questions. I'm usually the one doing research on other people going down their rabbit holes. So it was very interesting. You have to go down my own families. Right. I'm, I'm curious about that. Like, you know, when I'm asked about me, I'm not often asked about me. And so when someone says, well, how did you get into this? Or, you know, what led you to this? Or tell me a little bit about you. I think, what? oh, what? Um, hmm. That's right. I have a reason that I do this too. But I think, you know, what's interesting that I was thinking about when we were talking briefly uh, about why I do what I do before we started recording, one of the things that's so interesting about a path is that sometimes you're guided because of a certain idea about how people should be treated in this world or about justice, about uh, abuse stories that really speak to you for one reason or another, either because it was your experience or because it's so horrific in your mind that you, you need to help to provide them with a voice or justice. But I found that the harassment that I would get from cultic groups and still get from Scientology and other groups has been an interesting catalyst I think that they were hoping that it would have the opposite effect. And for a while it has, you know, every once in a while it makes me really annoyed and scared. Uh, but it's also kept a fire lit because it's there, there's something about it where you think, oh, you know, I have to deal with this, but there are people who have to deal with it really in a, in a much bigger way. And this is kind of nothing in comparison and I can handle this. And this reminds me that they're there and they're up to dirty tricks and I don't like that. So I, I have found that it has been a bit of a fuel, even though I'm not inviting it at all. And in fact, I think there's some cultic groups that hear that and then find that really disappointing and then kind of give up, which is good too. Happy to have them do that. And so I'm wondering for you about the timing of you kind of putting together this book, this story. Was there something that happened that led you to wanting to do this now? And then I'd love to hear more about your story in general. It may not seem like a real through line, but the 2016 election, presidential election, and then the subsequent policies that were passed, beginning with the Muslim ban, which was January 2017. And then there was the child separation policy. And then there was an uptick 
in Black bodies being destroyed by law enforcement. So this trifecta of horror, which is what it felt to me, uh, really uh, catapulted me to move in a way because I saw myself in all of those pieces. I saw a piece of myself in, in all of that. I am not an immigrant. My family are not immigrants. You know, I have to go back to my great grands to get the immigrant status. So uh, it wasn't about immigration, although I am as upset about the way we handle immigration in this country, but that's not what this is about. Uh, it was really about the separation of families that just sent me over the edge. And so beginning in 2017, the fire was really, really lit underneath me. And I could not keep this story under wraps for very long because I felt as though I would internally combust. There was just so much energy brewing inside of me and I had so many different emotions and I honestly felt emotionally overwhelmed. And the way I handle my emotions as a creative, as a writer, is I write. I put it down on page. So that was the why now. And I know 2017 is not 2022, but it takes time. And I guess any creative process is a fluid process, but it does take time. Um, but it's very exciting, though, that it's been put together. And I, I look forward to having this podcast be something that helps people also be informed about your story and it being so well-written because of you being a journalist and a writer as well and a teacher. I think that really helps to formulate a story in a way that makes it a teachable moment, but that makes it understood because there's so many lessons. So maybe we'll start with your story. Well, my story, it begins at the age of two, honestly. That is where my earliest memories start. But it wasn't necessarily a memory as much as it was a haunting that I felt for a very long time. So I don't know who I was before the age of two, which is the age that my mom and my father decided that they were going to convert to Islam. And as a result of converting, we would move into an Islamic community in Bushwick. And uh, we were there for two years. So from 1978 to 1980, I turned five just a few months after we left. That is a little slippery for me, that memory, because it seems like one moment I was in this place and then I wasn't. So it begins there. And sadly, it also began with a family separation. Oh, no. And Saru Allah community is what the name of the organization was called in Brooklyn. And for short, we called it the community. It wasn't ironic, but <laughs> in hindsight, extremely ironic because the moment we entered the door, my mom and I were separated. And for the next two years of my life, that was how we coexisted. My father went to what we call the men's quarters. My mom went to the women's quarters and I went to the children's house. And I had four ooms. Ooms, you can think of them as like aunts in the Islamic tradition. I had four ooms who were complete strangers to me and they became my guardians for the next two years of my life. And my mom, her responsibility was to be an um to other children. So there was a swapping of families that happened 
and uh, Dwight York, who was the leader of Ansarwala community, whom we called Imam Isa, that's or what he called himself to us. The understanding from him was that when families raise their own children in a communal environment, nepotism could creep up, which is just ridiculous. It was a very trying time for myself and for my mom. I am not sure it was that trying for my father because this was an extremely patriarchal environment that we were in. So he had a lot of freedom, literally and figuratively, whereas women and children were literally locked behind gates. Okay. So okay, a couple things, I mean, a couple hundred things, right. From what you've said so far. So the idea of at age two or two and a half, you still are attached. You haven't developed individuation, separation, the independence to be able to do things on your own. Sometimes at age two, there's some kids who are ready to kind of play on their own, but they check to see if mom is still there or dad is still there. You can see them looking behind them to make sure if they're separating out and going to another space, even to do a drawing in another room, they'll look back to make sure someone is still there. So I'm picturing you looking and having your mom not be there and having her not be anywhere nearby and not having a sense of how close or far, but just the fact that she wasn't there, I'm sure she felt miles away. And you have to be somehow able to handle this, not understanding it and not being able to put words to it. And at that age too, you don't have the language to express how you're feeling. You just feel. And then I think you have to learn how to self-soothe. That takes some time to do, and it affects attachment down the road, which is a challenge for a lot of people who are separated. I'm wondering just what it was like for you when you first were there. How was it explained to you? It wasn't. Uh, there was no explanation. I remember showing up at this big white house with my mom in hand, you know, she's holding my hand. And then I remember the woman who greeted us explaining that I would go left and my mom would go right. And that's what it was. Uh, henceforth, that's how we existed. So there was no explanation except for my ooms saying, we're your ooms now and fall in line. There was not any space for acclamation. There wasn't any space for orientation. There wasn't space for processing. It was like being pushed into a pond when you'd never swam before and figuring it out. So, and I think the same thing was also happening with my mom, that she too felt a little drowned, so to speak, you know, where's up, where's down. You know, obviously, you know, as an adult, she had better tools to deal with. She did have language. She did have an intellectual framework that she could work through. But for me, it was very jarring and it felt like abandonment. You know, when you, you say the phrase, I had done something wrong. I mean, that's very often what kids feel. I wrote a children's book about divorce from the perspective of kids talking to kids sort of a year out after the divorce and what they've learned about what they needed, what worked well for them, what didn't, and what they want parents to know, parents of any gender, it's a genderless book, to be all-inclusive. One of the things that I remember hearing in school when talking to families where they're going through separation and divorce is to let the kids know it's not their fault, which is also talked about in the book. And I remember not having a frame of reference for that. I'm thinking, why would kids think it's their fault? Well, of course, you know, you're somehow not enough. You're not enough of a glue, uh, not enough of a reason. 
to have people stay together, even though it has nothing to do with you. But children will look inward and wonder what they did. I think what also happens in these groups, especially if it's misogynistic, not only do you think you've done something wrong, but I think you think you are something wrong. I wonder about that feeling, if that was something that impacted you. Well, then I was very impacted by it because uh, the idea that I had done something wrong or better yet that I was wrong was something that was actually reinforced by my ooms. So the environment that I existed in was one of physical abuse. I even had a, a ruler named after me because I was the one who just would not fall in line. Something in me felt this grave injustice, as you mentioned early on, about what it feels like to be in a cult. And especially when you're the one without the power, or there's no way to even get close to the power, or you don't know what power is yet. Right. So I was a rebel, so to speak. I didn't know I was a rebel, but what I did know was that I really, really, really wanted my mother. And that was all I could think about. I was absolutely obsessed with wherever she was and why I was not there with her. A lot of my physical abuse came as a result of me constantly asking for her and my ooms saying to me that I needed to stop. And I needed to understand that this was my new life. There was no turning back. There was no mom coming to save me. Here I am. So I did think that there was something wrong with me because they told me that. They would tell me that I talked too much. That was something that was said to me often that I uh, asked too many questions that I would not just do, but I wanted to know the why of things. And uh, all of those, the way children operate, basically, you know, that's just a very childlike way to think about the world. One asks questions, one wants to know, why am I here? Who are you people? What are you doing to me? And that was unacceptable in this environment. This was not a place of question asking, nor people providing answers. This was a place of here are the rules and you follow them. So it took me a long time, actually, Rachel, to come to terms with the fact that there wasn't anything wrong with me, because I did think this for a very long time. I actually thought this through my adolescence, uh, that there was something irrevocably broken. And um, at the time, though, I did not have the thread to my source because this place was a shadowy figure in my brain uh, and no one had talked about where we had been, what we had gone through. It was almost as though it had never happened once we left. So yes, I did think for a very, very long time that whatever the rage was that I was trying to continuously navigate that I could not control, whatever the depression was that I didn't have words for that I could not control. I, I didn't know what the genesis was and no one was giving me the background story to understand what this was. So it did take me a while until I got the story and then the light bulb went off in my head. And I and that's when I said, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with me at all. I was in a crazy house. Right. It is so liberating 
when people find out they were living in the crazy house that they're not crazy or they're when people have a, a let's say a narcissistic partner and they don't know why at the end of the day they always feel worse about themselves while they're making the other person feel better about themselves and sort of why things are not quite making sense and the gaslighting and once you realize the origin where that's coming from, then you realize you can sort of take it off you. And then it helps you then have a clearer definition of you and what is a problem about you and what isn't and where it all began. But if that takes a while to undo it is this sort of, it's not only a puzzle, but it's like interlocked where you have to kind of really detach to these things that have become sort of facts in your mind, probably because the messages were repeated. You know, that again, just you wanting your mom meant something pathological about you, even though it's absolutely natural and right. It's very confusing. Yeah. The idea, just the audacity of speaking my mind of speaking. There used to be a saying, children are meant to be seen, not heard. And the community took that mantra and popped steroids into it. You know, so it really was, we do not want to hear from you children ever. Just want you to do what we tell you to do. And it wasn't just children, to be honest with you. It was the entire ecosystem. My mom was treated the same way. A lot of women were treated that way of this is what you're supposed to do. And you're definitely not supposed to question what is told for you to do. Everyone fall in line. I mean, I think a lot of people in these communities, if the leaders could move out of the way, the people actually have sort of this natural proclivity to be a community. And so I think the leadership actually keeps it from being able to be healthy and connected because it feels too threatening. I mean, that's often why they have to come up with some cockamamie story about nepotism or whatever the reason is that they need to separate people. But I think those connections are really ultimately threatening. Do you think that was how it was for Dwight York? I think Dwight York is a classic narcissist. I think that York really, really liked power and by any means necessary, I think was probably what he was thinking and that he knew in his own mad genius way that the demographics and the timing was perfect for a person like him. He could get his hands around people who were desperate, people who felt powerless people who felt disenfranchised and tell them that they were beautiful and that they were kings and queens. We could have our own Black utopia. In the late 70s or throughout the 70s, you know, which was coming off of the the civil rights movement of the 50s and the 60s, and then the Black Panther movements and right all of these um, nationalistic movements or even just movements that was that was trying so hard to uplift the Black collective. He came in through the side door and he said, okay, I think, you know, I don't know what the man was thinking, but if I could get into a room in his head, I would think that he saw great opportunity in these other movements that had floundered, right? They hadn't survived. And he said, okay, These people need something. So I'm going to be that something because I want to be that something. I want them to give me their all. And people did. They gave them their children. They gave him their lives. They gave him their money. 
But he also, like I said, I think he was a very smart man because not only did he know how to manipulate the Black community and our vulnerabilities, but he also learned enough about Islam to seem believable and to make us think that that's what this was, because that's not what this was. Right. I was actually going to ask about that, about how accurate or not (laughs) the assessment of it being or aligned with Islam was it. Often these fringe groups are not. It's sort of uh, someone's version of it or that they sort of pick and choose the parts of it that work for them and that work to further their goals. And so a lot of people leave these communities being very confused and try to then go to other places to pray. And what they learned was very different. And so they don't feel connected to the greater community. They have to sort of learn from scratch. And so what did you come to find out about his version of it and how sort of, I don't know, tailor-made it was to him and his goals? You know, there were some pieces of it of our experience in there, which felt extremely authentic. We learned Arabic and we spoke Arabic fluently. Actually, Arabic was the only language allowed spoken with inside of the community. English was forbidden. We prayed, we dressed, we looked the part, went to the masjid. We did not eat pork. We fasted, you know, we we observed Ramadan and we did it all. But then inside of that, were the teachings of racism, were the teachings of extreme misogyny, were the teachings that women are here to serve their mate. I mean, even the term mate and not husband was a very interesting way that he set, I think, up the relationship dynamics. Because what he was doing inside of the community in Brooklyn, and I'll get to what happened, you know, once he got to Georgia, but what he was doing there was, um, there were stories of some women who did not have mates, air quotes, inside of the community. Maybe they came as solo women seeking whatever it was they were looking for. And if you didn't have a mate inside of the community as a woman, you were extremely vulnerable to York. Because at some point, he's going to want that woman in his bed. There were other stories of mothers who, whatever vulnerable state they were in, maybe, let me back up a bit. Everything was also rationed with inside of this place. So an example, if a woman was on her menstrual cycle, she did not just have a coffer of uh, tampons or, you know, sanitary pads. She actually had to put in a request to get her feminine products. Usually that went through one's mate. One's mate would supply everything that their spouse or their partner needed. Imagine if you didn't have a mate, well, then you got to go to what I call the big house, which was York's house where he lived with his four wives and his children. And you would have to ask, hey, I'm on my period. I need something. Maybe he wanted something too. And so what some mothers did was they would give their daughters up to him so that they could get the essentials that they needed. So that was um, one example of this isn't Islam. None of this is. Um, and, and the racism was real. 
you know, I have read about white nationalism and what York was teaching was the black version of it. We were taught that white people were devils. These are all quotes. Dogs are never to be touched because they are the best friends of the white man. We did not have mirrors, so we never knew what we looked like because mirrors were considered a sign of vanity. We also were extremely impoverished, so we had very little to eat in this place. The children were well-fed and we were well-clothed. I mean, I only had two outfits, but still, I had two outfits. I had shoes. You know, I had undergarments. My mom did not have food. Often, often they were, they were very hungry. That was another way to be control the environment. People can't eat without this man saying so, because you can't leave the gates. You can't go out to the supermarket and get that banana or that bread that you need to then make a sandwich with, you know. Yes, everything was rationed. He was under investigation in Brooklyn with the FBI in Brooklyn. And my parents knew this. My mom knew this. And this was actually one of the fears that my mom told me she had was the fear of the government coming in and taking all the children and then locking all the parents up. I don't think she was that far off, honestly, from uh, that feeling. However, that didn't happen in Brooklyn. We left in 80, 1980. And a few years later, he went upstate New York. And he changed the teachings, tweaked it, I should say, from Islam to Native American. And this is when they started to incorporate outer space talk and aliens. And um, that's what he did. He tweaked it slightly and they put in this Native American thing. And the, and the his argument became that... Um, we are a sovereign nation. Honestly, uh, he taught that Ansaru, that we were sovereign people. From Sudan, then that's what he was saying in Brooklyn. When he got upstate, it was we are the sovereign nation of this land, <laughs> the, these United States. I don't know how long he was in, he was upstate New York for. I don't think it was very long. I think that people were really freaked out by him and his crew. <laughs> His band. So then they moved to Macon, Georgia. And that's when they became the Nuwabian Nation of Moors. Switched again to Egyptology, bringing in still the alien teachings with a little remnant of Islam. And that's when he got into trouble. That's very interesting. Okay. So I know, oh, there's so much to talk about. If it's okay, if we go back to. When you were there, one of the things that people sometimes want is to have kind of a, a sense of a day in the life and what it was like. And also, I'm curious about the boys, not only the girls, but how the boys were treated and if they were treated better than the girls, even at a younger age. So what was a day like for you? As far as you remember, I know you were little, but from what you remember or from what you heard, what was it like for you? What was it like for your mom and for your dad? And also if the boys were treated the same. So for me, uh, a day in a life would be wake up, wash in a sink with two other girls at a time, timed, 
Everything was timed. We would get dressed. We would go to Arabic class. So I do have memories of sitting in a classroom with a little baby desk. We would make prayer. And there would be a lot of washing in between then in Islamic tradition before you make salat, which is prayer. You make wudu, which is a cleansing. You clean your face. You uh, make sure your nasal passage is clean. All, all your orifices, basically, uh, because you, you want to show up to the divine as pure as possible, um, which I actually find quite beautiful in the Islamic tradition. And uh, there would be time for play. So we had a playground that was built behind the children's house. That playground was surrounded by a gate with a barbed wire on top of it. You can imagine it felt like a prison. So there would be playtime. If we had to make prayer, we would make prayer. We'd have dinner. There would be time for cartoons when all the girls would come together. We watched Tom and Jerry a lot. At least that is the memory that I have. And it was also one of my favorite cartoons growing up. So uh, there must have been a reason. I think it was the most joyous time for me. And we also had Tiffle time, which uh, Tiffle means baby. And it was a twice daily visit from our moms for 45 minutes each. If she was able to make it if she wasn't working or busy or sick or whatever an adult, you know, would happen to an adult that she would not be able to make these very rigid times to spend 45 minutes with her child. And it would be time for bed. And then we do the whole thing all over again. I never left this place. Everything happened within very confined spaces. I, for the most part, spent most of my day in one room, unless I went to prayer, which was in the exact same house. And as I said, the playground was behind the house and back of it. That was my world. For my mom, she too was not allowed to leave the gates unless she was going to cash a welfare check. All women were forced to go on welfare within this place. Whatever jobs they had on the outside did not matter unless their job was a lawyer or a doctor, right? Because surely they'd be missed. But, you know, my mom was neither. Uh, so she had no job. And the welfare checks, by the way, all went to York, just so we're clear. These women did not get to keep government checks. That was it. They went out, at least my mom, she was only allowed to leave to cash that welfare check and bring it back and give it to the wives, one of Issa's wives. Her days over this time changed quite a bit because she too found her little rebellious side and, you know, started pushing back on several things, but she had a job as everyone did when she first, when we first got there, her job was to work in the mail room and to respond to letters from the incarcerated who were interested in what the community was. Uh, so that was her initial job. And eventually she got out of that because she explained to someone of power, I'm in no position to talk about Islam. Like I just got here, you know, I don't, I'm, I don't, 
even speak the language. I can't even read the Quran, for goodness sakes. So then she became someone like an um. She was placed in a position to be responsible for other children. And her joy was with the really small babies. But this was a uh, catch-22 situation for my mom, because imagine, as I said, all the children and the moms were separated. That included infants. So women would give birth. And these babies would go to my mom. So my mom had her hands full with babies. And there would be time for, I forget what they called it, um, but it's basically when she and my father got to have sex. <laughs> and they had their sex in the sex room. And similarly to me, my mom shared space with a group of women. Uh, Maybe there were four or five of them in one room uh, and they had to figure their little space out. I shared a room with maybe 25 to 30 girls. So she had to share this space also. So for the women, it was same thing. But for my mom also, she had to learn Arabic. So she was taking lessons because as I said, English was forbidden. I don't know what that must have been like for her to be an adult with a place with a vocabulary that she cannot use. She spent a lot of time, you know, trying to learn the language, trying to learn how to pray correctly, how to be a good Muslim wife, good Muslim woman, how to clean. There was a lot of that. My father, the men, depending on their role, they were mujahids, uh, the mujahidin. Uh, They were the ones who guarded the community. So they had their weapons and they were outside. They would be either outside, outside of the gates of the compound, or they would be outside of our room guarding. There was always a guard somewhere, weaponized also. So there were them, the Mujahids, and then there were men like my father, the majority of them who were tasked with peddling Imam Isa's teachings. That meant that they would take all the books that Imam Isa had produced. And these were very colorful, glossy, vibrant books that he put together, always with himself on the cover, looking some new godly way. Inside would be the teachings of the community. So my father and other fathers or other men would go around New York City selling these books. They would sell incense. And they would sell oils, essential oils, and they would bring that money back to York. So that's what their jobs were. And of course, there was prayer for them, too, because we all prayed when we were supposed to five times a day. But the men, their jobs were to go outside. So while the women and children were to stay indoors, always the men's job would hit the streets. The boys... I don't know much about because I rarely saw boys. I was always in the girls' world. It was an extremely segregated place. The boys were in their own universe. And when I would see the boys was only twice. It was during prayer because we all prayed in the same room or it was during playground time when all the kids would just kind of bust out And we'd all just kind of run around together. So that is what I knew about the worlds of everyone. I 
do know, my mom told me this one story, which fascinates me about how she got to leave on a regular basis. She had a Macy's credit card that she had brought in with her and somehow no one stole it because there was a lot of uh, theft within the community also, which I find extremely interesting because we were so impoverished. You know, it's like, what are you actually taking? We don't have anything, you know, but in an environment like that, there's somebody still has more than me. Right. But the way she got out um, during this brainstorm of hers was she um, went to one of York's wives uh, who she had, you know, this loose relationship with, and she presented her Macy's card. She bartered for her freedom. And she said, you know, I know we always need things for the children and we can get them with this card. And because it's my card, I have to go with you. I'm wondering also what the explanation was. You know, a lot of people who leave compounds who talk to me, I mean, I remember when there was this raid on the FLDS compound, the polygamous sect, one of the polygamous sect of Mormonism run by Warren Jeffs. Uh, So I was there in Texas and working with the social workers who were working with the women and the children who were taken off the compound. And there's a lot to be said about how, how it was done. And, you know, for some people it's freeing, other people it's traumatizing, but either way, I think what was very interesting about it was hearing them talk about why the gates were locked, why they couldn't leave the explanations given that it was to protect them from the outside world rather than to keep them hostage, basically. So I wonder what the explanation was given to everyone there about why there was barbed wire on the fences. The exact same. Women and girls were told that we were gems who needed to be protected from the evils of the outside world, hence the guard standing outside the door. It was also the explanation for why the women had to cover their face, why they had to wear their veil up, was that we were way too precious for the world to lay eyes on us, lay full eyes on us. And there was actually a rule that only a woman's mate was allowed to see her face. So women always had their veil up. That's what we called it when you were in full, full garb. A woman would take her veil down when she was around children or other women or her mate, but anyone else, including her family, because they obviously are not to be trusted anymore, veil up. So that was the uh, reason for why we were so barred in was that the world was bad. And we were way too precious and vulnerable for that world. So interesting. That's done time and time again. I think it also gives this sense, this false sense that then you are safe within the confines of the commune. And special. And special. Right, right, right. You know, because why else would you walk across hot coals every day unless someone's telling you you're special for being able to do this. You know, so that was the other thing was that there was this sense of uniqueness, that there's no one else like us. 
Right. So sometimes also people will say to me, I went, after I left my group, I felt like I was wearing an invisible crown that I had been anointed or made to feel special or above, but no one else could see it. And then I wasn't quite sure if I ever really had it. But also ultimately, why does it matter? I mean, it, it, it's sort of out of the, the ego need of the leader to need to have this sense that everyone has risen above everyone else. But I think in the general population doesn't actually need that message. But some people do feel very crestfallen after they leave because now they're part of this world that they've been taught is so base and so beneath them. And I wonder if that's something you saw with people leaving the community. I definitely saw that with my mom. There was a bit of a struggle when we left for her to reacclimate to the world. It was a challenge for her. And I, I was very resentful of it because I was ready. I was ready for the world. I was ready to be quote unquote normal. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be a normal child. You know, I wanted to wear Lee's to school, you know, Lee's, you know, I wanted to wear sneakers and um, my mom wanted to retain this sense of specialness, this sense of uniqueness. Uh, And I don't think she actually wanted to stand out, even though we absolutely stood out once we left because my mom was still wearing her veil. I was wearing my hijab still. Um, Once my brother arrived, he did not actually dress him like a Muslim boy, but he would wear kufi, which is the, the headdress that men wear or boys, men and boys. And I think she, because of her own background, how challenging it was for her as a child and as an adolescent growing up because of what she went through, having lost a mom so early on and a father who was just MIA. It was really important for her to feel that she was special. And once we were back out in the world and people looked at us like weirdos, it was almost like she dug in deeper a little bit to be special. I had grown up with other ooms who still did the thing. They still dressed the part. They may not have been speaking Arabic. I don't know if they still made salat five times a day or not. I don't know. But they were still sort of in that world. And it was really, really hard for a lot of people to extract themselves. And here's one really chilling memory. I was a teenager, so I don't know, maybe 13, 14. And um, I was in my room. My mom was in her room. And I hear my mom scream. And she says, Jamila, come here. And I'm like, oh my God, this lady has fallen and cracked her head. I run into the room and she points to the television. I'm like, what, what? And there was a news report about a woman who had jumped out of a window with her child. And my mom said, we knew her. And I said, we? She says, we were in the community with her. So the work that it, I'm sure took a lot of people, not all, because there were some people who knew this is a bad place. And a lot of people who lasted maybe two weeks, you know, they were there for two weeks and they looked around and they said, not me, not my child, not my husband, not my wife. We're out of here. And they left. But people who were there, you know, maybe a year longer, it took a lot of extraction, a lot of mental and emotional work. And I think a lot of family familial support 
Right. You know, the impact that something like that has on people is so dependent upon people's wiring to begin with, how long they have stayed in, what their experiences were when they were in, what not only they experienced, but what they witnessed happening to other people, which is its own trauma, or what they couldn't stop from happening to other people, which is another trauma. And then not having people after you get out, not having a community, not knowing how to connect or feeling like you're part of anything anymore because you feel like you're on an island unto yourself. And that's a, it's a very uh, alienating and isolating kind of feeling. I'm wondering, just as we're finishing up, the time goes so quickly. I would love for you to talk about your book and that the process. I mean, I think the fact that what was punishable and the way how you got into trouble was that you were talking, you were questioning, you were wanting to know the answer to the question, why? I mean, that's the journalist in you at age two. And so, you know, I love that now you get to talk and you get to answer and ask questions and you get to understand and explain why. So, I'm wondering about the book itself and the process of it and what it's been like for you and the lessons that people would be able to just kind of give us a a little hint of the lessons because I want people to read the book to find out more. The lessons that you want people to learn from your experience, from your family's experience. The first lesson, and I really mean this, is look out for our children. That is the place where I'd like to start because that was my origin because I felt no one was looking out for me. You know, I go back to the child separation policy Donald Trump had implemented. I mean, we are malleable. Yes. I mean, we're humans. All humans are malleable in some, you know, shape or form. But I think um, adults treat children as though they're blank slates, that there's no trauma that will live and stay with them, that they'll be okay. They won't remember that. Or I'm doing this for the child's good. But if that child is screaming at the top of their lungs, that this is not for me, or if that child goes from a really happy, bubbly baby to one who stops speaking like I did, I actually had a mute period. You have to pay attention to that. Adults really, really, really need to look out for their babies. If an adult wants to go join the circus, go for it. Leave your kids to (laughs) adults who are capable because the kid doesn't belong in the circus. You know, the kid belongs learning and having a child's life, forming relationships and learning how to be inquisitive and curious and uh, rebellious or whatever it is that all the different things that kids do through our growth process in order to become hopefully well-rounded adults. Babies need to really be protected. The other thing is I want people to really understand that if something sounds too good, and if there's one person saying they have the answers, run, because they don't. They do not. The people who have the answers are us. We know what we need. We know this. And when our guts Tell us, gosh, I'm uncomfortable with this. But then our brains say, but you're going to do it anyway. Listen to your gut. If you're a woman, listen to your womb or listen to your heart. But um, or, or for some people, it's their breath. But no one knows what we need besides us. And the other thing is that I also want people, especially people who feel desperate, to take a beat, take a beat. 
And if they think they might have found something that is a gateway, a doorway, a portal, interrogate it, interrogate it, interrogate it. Ask questions, ask questions. And if the person you're asking questions to, their answer is just do it. You don't have to ask questions. Run, run. Uh-huh. Okay. Those are pivotal in so many ways, but just for a healthy society, healthy relationships. You know, when we talk about asking questions, one of the things you find out about not only is if your questions are going to be answered, but how you're going to be treated if you even ask them and if it's safe. And if it's not right, then it's an unsafe place because then you can't use your critical thinking. You can't assess. You can't use your voice. Can't use your voice. Right, right, right. Well, I am so glad that you are using your voice. I am so glad that you have put this into words, that you're sharing with us a part of your life that was so pivotal, so powerful that it has stayed with you. And for good reason, because it is so life-changing, but also really illuminating, I think, about the kind of personalities that we come across, like the Dwight Yorks, how to kind of find out who that person really is and why you need to stay far away. And also just about human nature, I think, and that we're all looking for something. But I love your point about that even if a parent wants to join the circus, don't schlep your kids into these situations that could put them at such a disadvantage and leave them feeling unsafe and totally turn their world upside down. Yeah, it's a very unfair place to be. You know, children are already vulnerable. And really all we have are our guardians at the end of the day. So the guardians have to be okay, or at least know where the kid can be okay. Mm -hmm. I love it. Okay. Well, Jamila, it was an honor. It was a pleasure to get to know you, to hear your insights. And where can people find your work and your book? The book is on Amazon. My website is njamilachism.com. On Twitter, I am at jamilachism. Got it. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope to talk to you again. Thank you so much. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Jamila for opening up her experiences to us talking so much about what happened to her, how she tried to make sense of it as such a young child, having her life turned upside down, and how she was able to get her life back on track. It is really quite amazing to go from a situation where you really couldn't get any questions answered to then becoming a journalist and a teacher, an adjunct professor. It really is an interplanetary difference. It couldn't be more different. When Jamila said something that really, really hit home, I wanted to make sure to bring it up. She was talking about how in the group, she often felt like she had done something wrong. And when you are separated suddenly from your mother, from your loved ones, and there's no explanation given, It is often the child's reaction to think that 
they had done something that they shouldn't have done. And that's why they're being pulled away from their parent. Or their parent doesn't necessarily want to be with them. And maybe it's because they felt that they were acting out or they weren't the kind of kids their parents really wanted. It's the reason that when parents get divorced, you make sure to tell the kids first, this is not your fault. You've done nothing to cause this. This was a grown-up decision. Same here. This was a grown-up decision. It just happened to land on Jamila. And so when you are a smart kid, when you're an introspective kid, you wonder, what's wrong with me? What have I done? One of the things that she went on to say that I think says so much about someone's experience within a cultic system and within abusive relationships as well, where you don't just say that you feel like you've done something wrong, you actually escalate it in your mind to believe that you are something wrong. And not only do you do it to yourself, but the system around you supports that notion a lot of the time that you are something wrong. But there's really no such thing. Unless there's something tremendously wrong with you and you have a huge amount of sociopathy and that you just don't care about another human being and you feel fine hurting them and damaging them and wreaking havoc on this world, okay, then you might be able to say about yourself, that you are something that is inherently unhealthy, something that could be very wrong in the world. But when you are a child born into a family system where you are pulled away, a lot of people will then look inward. There is a quote that I've seen passed around a lot on the internet, and it is so true, that when kids are abused or emotionally abused or abandoned, they don't often start to hate the person who has abused them or who has abandoned them, who has neglected their needs. They start to hate themselves. It's a cautionary tale for a lot of parents who are getting involved in a group and they're looking around and seeing how the kids are being treated. And they might be believing the lines they're being fed, which is your kids will be fine. Look how happy they are when they're playing and look how neatly dressed they looked if that's the situation in the group. But a lot of it is just smoke and mirrors. Those kids are often wondering, what's wrong with me? Why was it so easy for this person who loves me to reject me? Why is it that she or he feels fine without me? So it's a very big decision when people get involved in a group, but especially when there's a child involved that's not just about you anymore. And that child might carry around something from that time for the rest of her or his life. When she talks about having this really abject sense that something is really, really, really wrong about the group, but that there's nothing you can do about it as a child, there is a powerlessness that also can stay with you throughout life that you have to overcome you have to show yourself in the world outside and be very careful about the people you surround yourself with who will honor that control that you want to exert, the powerful voice you want to learn to have, who will be very supportive of you also getting your message out or writing a book about it, talking about it like on a podcast. I wish Jamila a good and strong and successful life. And I'm so glad that she's talking about what it does to you 
when you're used to being with family and suddenly there's the women's quarters and the men's quarters and the children's quarters and nothing makes sense anymore. And someone else is putting you to sleep at night. I also like at the end when she was talking about the lessons and I can't underscore them enough to look out for your children all the time and to know too that children are often not left alone in these groups. So if you go up to a child and you ask if she or he is happy, they know someone's watching and they will very often feel like they have to say yes because they don't want you to feel bad or they have to say yes because the person watching them wants them to say yes. And so see if you can find a private space where you can ask them to tell you really how they are. But even more than that, I think a child doesn't want to have to tell you. A child wants you to notice. A child wants you to notice the look in their eye, even though there's a smile on their face. And the other part, if one person says they have all the answers, run. Yes. Yes. I used to say, if someone says, I have all the answers and all the wisdom in the world and you don't need to go anywhere else, make sure to go somewhere else. And so if it seems too good to be true, it is. And... Just like you wouldn't be out there in the world telling people that you have all the answers because what would give you the right to say that? Think for a moment if someone tells you that and think not only that there can't be a place that has all the answers, but what is wrong with that person to make them feel that they have the right or that they have the ability <laughs> to have all the answers? Something is very wrong in that situation. Thank you to Jamila. And thank you to all of the people who come forward, especially the people who felt really hurt as young children and have spent so many years trying to make sense of all of it. Talk to you soon. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrination podcast and for twitter find us at at underscore indoctrination we love hearing from you too so send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com and for more updates on the show visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination <laughs>